0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on the Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's hot sauce, hand harvested, sustainably farmed whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking. And by listeners like you, you can support our series on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome back to our program Dr. Angela Rasmussen. She is a scholar. An investigator at the University of Saskatchewan. Thank you so much for joining me again, Angela.
1: It's really my pleasure to be here, Alex.
0: Angela, you had a, a quite marvelous and illuminating thread on the recent CDC reversal on mask wearing. And I was hoping you could share with our listeners your reaction at this point to this new guidance and whether it is informed or misinformed, how you assess it.
1: Absolutely. So I think that for me, that the biggest question about this guidance is not whether it's based on science, because I do think that the evidence base um, is quite strong, suggesting that that vaccinated people don't need to wear masks really in, in any environment indoors. Um, I think that you know we have a lot of real world data now that that shows that the vaccines, all of them, are are fairly protective against infection with SARS coronavirus too, as well as protecting against uh, symptomatic covid nineteen disease, which is what the clinical trials assessed. We also um, have some emerging data, although it's not quite as strong, but some emerging data that suggests that people who are infected with so-called through infections um, are are not, shedding enough virus to transmit it to others Um, and we don't have really any indication of large outbreaks caused uh, by vaccinated people who had breakthrough infections so overall the the scientific evidence is quite sound Um, but my issues with the guidance really have to do with other aspects of it and not the, the scientific basis for making that recommendation one of those is that across the US nationally, we still haven't even vaccinated half of the adult population yet. Um, so we're really you know, behind where other countries such as Israel have been when they've reported these sustained reductions in new cases. Um, this is really gonna vary a lot from community to community. So a community like San Francisco, for example, where they have very, very few cases and where the vast majority of the adult population has had at least one shot Um, it's going to be pretty safe to remove mask mandates there. Uh, In a a community just a couple hours away, though, in Sacramento, there's a higher prevalence and a much lower overall vaccination rate. So people in that community are potentially going to be more vulnerable. Um, In addition to that, uh, this is really on the honor system. We don't have any kind of, of infrastructure for verifying your vaccine status. So we have to rely on on people to be honest about that and I think that you know there's already been reports of people you know not disclosing their vaccine status or just saying sure sure I'm vaccinated I'm not going to wear a mask anywhere um and I think that that right now given that the vast majority of people again nationwide are not yet fully vaccinated um, we are in a, a situation where this might have just been a little bit too soon. And I don't think that was really effectively communicated to people. Um, I think that, that you know, the, the CDC is trying to do the best they can to incentivize vaccination. I think this will incentivize it for some, but it also ignores the fact that that many people still want vaccines, but haven't yet been able to get them. Um, there are people who are homebound. There are people who are in marginalized communities that haven't had the same access to vaccines. There are people who uh, can't afford to take time off work to get a vaccine or to stay home should they have side effects uh, that, that really haven't been able to access the vaccines yet. And in many places, we just opened up vaccination to everybody over the age of 16 uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. We also only really opened up vaccination to people over the age of 12 um, about a week and a half ago. So I think that this would have been great guidance if it had come out uh, you know, a, a few months later um, or if it had been tied to benchmarks um, related with immunization rates and uh, prevalence within individual communities. But as it is now, it's not really applicable to a, a one size fits all vaccination strategy for the, the U.S.
0: You're not challenging the scientific basis of this decision, but I think it's also worth considering the public policy ramifications of this decision. So public policy ought to consider efficacy, but efficacy alone without regard, as you mentioned, for the, the preponderance of the population vaccinated and other factors, too like the supply and planning for booster shots. The most optimistic view of immunity is one year, but that is also an optimistic view. For every person, correct me if I'm wrong, it's going to be a little bit different, and it could be six months for one person and one year for another person, and it is not in the, in the vein of a, a smallpox or a polio vaccine or, for that matter, we don't believe a tetanus uh, that you would have to have every few years or hepatitis that you would have to have every 10 years. Um, We believe this is going to be something that you have to have annually. So for me, the guidance seemed quite stunning to make without having a plan for boosters.
1: Well, I don't know that that's true. So we, we haven't really, and you can't, um, really determine durability of protection uh without waiting that amount of time unfortunately so i don't know that that we think that it is likely that we're going to need annual booster shots in fact i would be very surprised if we do um just because of the way the immune system works now it's possible that with variants emerging um, and so far all of the variants that have emerged even the variants of concern are still uh protected against by the vaccines, um, but it's possible that that certainly variants could emerge in the future that would uh, necessitate more frequent booster shots. Um, but I'm not convinced that we're going to need annual boosters, and I'm not as convinced that that, that is as important of an issue as uh, why this guidance, why now? This brings up a good point. One of the biggest issues I have is that we don't really know what the CDC's reasoning was in choosing to release this guidance now. Um, it wasn't a discussion that was that that was happening in the public eye. It was really a surprise announcement. So we don't know if they can you know, considered the need for boosters down the road. We don't know if they considered um, what this would mean for a, a community with high prevalence versus low prevalence or high vaccination rates versus low vaccination rates. Um, there, there was really not much warning that this guidance was going to be changed. And I think people were really taken taking surprise. People are saying, why now? And why did you come to this conclusion at all? Um, certainly, if boosters was part of that decision, um, you know I could see how it would be, but we really ought to know about that. We're all, we're all stakeholders in this, all of us are at risk. So we should really have a little more insight into how and why this decision was made.
0: I think you're suggesting that without that explanation, there is the fear as was a dominant reality during the Trump administration of the politicization, of the agency. Um, And also if you look at the track record um, of Tony Fauci, but also if you look at the track record, just of Walensky in these last months, it's like a seesaw of, you know, being the utmost frightful about variants, um, which may have been warranted at that given moment to a much more, if you wanna call it nonchalant, or a much more free um, and unconcerned approach for the country as a whole, because when you do open that masking, um, you're not guaranteeing that the vaccinated people will unmask. You are, in many cases, likely going to cause a lot of unvaccinated people to unmask too um the 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 question about the durability of immunity is one that, that you're an expert on. I mean that, that's something that you study and consider. What is leading you to believe that uh, annual boosters will will not be necessary? Is it the result of um, what, what you think will be very durable? immunity or is it the result of mitigating transmission or pockets of surging virus?
1: So it, it would really be both. Um, so when I say that I think I'm skeptical of the idea that annual boosters will be needed, um, That that's really dependent on the, the, ver- the virus variants that are circulating right now not changing significantly. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, we have all of these variants of concern but so far even the ones where the vaccines are a little bit less uh, effective in terms of protecting against infection they're still quite protective against uh severe disease so in in my view that means that the vaccines are still working against these variants this is not a situation like with influenza where we actually have immunologically distinct strains circulating every year um, now that that could happen if the virus continues to to circulate um, both here and in other parts of the world um, we can 't exclude the possibility that at some point a virus will diverge
0: Dr. Rasmussen, this is my point, which is that i don 't think this guidance forebodes very favorably in terms of the the, the public policy considerations it 's to me, the secondary issue is travel restrictions right because we know that this newborn virus from Wuhan emerged in Italy and France and Europe and soon all over the world. And we have put in measures for Brazil and India, but I'm left concerned with this guidance that it that it does not really consider the speed at which new um, resurgences and, and variants uh, and resurgences of variants can pick up and and paralyze our health system again. And this announcement without really, to to my eyes, and and again, correct me if you think you saw this, a plan, if not just for booster shots, to understand this made its way here because of a lack of, of control systems for understanding if and when this was breaking down our healthcare systems. Um, and even with the vaccinations, don't you think it's an appropriate public policy consideration um, that the, the CDC ought to um, let the public know how it's making certain that what transpired both with the onset of the virus in the early part of 2020, but also the holiday related resurgences and buckling of health systems will not happen again. Don't they owe that kind of public policy guidance so that we understand how we're not gonna be in that situation again?
1: Yeah, I think that um, it's it's really going to be essential um, and this is not necessarily for this mask guidance, but in general, it's going to be absolutely essential to go over the policy decisions that, that went wrong and led us to the place that we are in right now. But it's also um, not, not really correct to say that, that this is all the CDC's fault. Certainly the CDC made a lot of missteps. Um, during the Trump administration, the CDC was was really, uh, they were prevented from from probably reacting the way that they would have liked. And the travel restrictions that were implemented by the Trump administration Uh, were completely inadequate and they were also implemented too late. So you can't uh, have travel restrictions that are going to keep a virus out of your country when you only exclude U.S. national or exclude non-U.S. nationals from crossing your borders. Um, A virus doesn't care if you're a U.S. citizen or not, Uh, it can come into the country. Um, Similarly, when those travel restrictions were put into place, there were long lines. I'm sure you probably remember seeing the, the crazy scenes at customs um, at many American airports that resulted from that, those all probably helped uh, the importation of, of this virus into the U.S. to begin with. Now, whether or not we're going to be importing more dangerous variants in the future remains to be seen. Part of this depends on how quickly we can roll out vaccines to the rest of the world. But the reason I have a problem with this guidance right now is that in the U.S., we are still in danger in many communities of having a surge um, because there still is many communities that have a, a relatively high prevalence. It's not as high as it was, of course, during the holiday season, um, but it's still high. And uh, and also, you combine that with low rates of vaccination, um, and then you tell people, you know, we trust you just take your mask off if you're vaccinated, don't if you're not. um, But there are going to be a lot of people who don't like masks who will use this as a reason to not wear them. Um, In those communities in particular where there hasn't been equal access to vaccines, where there hasn't been a large wide scale uptake of the vaccines, we are in danger of having regional surges, if not a national one.
0: Are there scientists you respect who have a contrary position, that we will require annual boosters. And if we don't, especially because people were timed in this vaccination regimen at different points, so people will become vulnerable once again at different points, are are there scientists, um, vaccinologists, virologists you respect, who, who take the other position that we need to be very guarded and have a very clear idea of who was vaxxed at what point, because if we don't boost people, we are gonna get back to an April or March 2020 environment. Unless of course there are any kind of miracle interventions or monoclonal antibodies are you know, available to everyone at any point and they they work perfectly. Um I, I'm just trying to get a sense from you if, if you if you think that the there is a possibility, um scientifically speaking, that the other scenario could could be could could turn out to be true.
1: So there's a lot of scientists that I respect that that have you know different predictions about what we're gonna need in terms of boosters and what that's gonna look like. Um I haven't actually really seen anybody who has said that that sort of the worst case scenario that you just described would happen, that people all of a sudden, you know, a new variant would come out that is completely resilient to the vaccines and and starts another surge in the US. Um, I think that that's really unlikely from a scientific perspective just because of the way the immune system works. So this virus, um, when it it mutates and new variants emerge, um, they're not so radically different overnight with just one or two mutations um or even you know 20 mutations that it renders our immune response completely useless and we've already seen now too that there is some cross protection against sars coronavirus classic early on in the pandemic actually last february people were showing that you could take antibodies from somebody who had sars coronavirus and use those antibodies to neutralize sars coronavirus too and SARS coronavirus and SARS coronavirus 2 are related, but they're actually quite different. They're much more different than any of the variants are from, from sort of original recipe SARS coronavirus 2. So I think that the situation that you're describing where a variant would come in and if we don't get boosters, it's just going to cause, you know, an entirely new wave of disease is unlikely. It's not impossible. But I I just actually don't know anybody who has said that that is a likely scenario. I think that if we started to see cases creep up of vaccine resistance, um, the the trials are already happening. In fact, there's trial data from some of them. The manufacturing is scaling up anyways, uh, especially for the mRNA vaccines. Um, I think that that something like that could be averted with appropriate surveillance, which is also fortunately increasing. And, you know, in terms of rolling out boosters quickly to places that were affected. Um, But, you know, your point stands that that we need to continue to be vigilant even after uh, more people have been vaccinated than are vaccinated now. And this this math guidance um, doesn't really get at uh, the the need for continued vigilance, even after the pandemic um, is is affecting our daily lives less and less.
0: Angela, you are also a and j evangelist, if you will. Um, you are a recipient of that vaccine. You believe in its efficacy up against Pfizer and Moderna. Um, and you also recognize um, the, the uh, contributions to hesitancy as a result of the brief pause. And it was a very brief pause. It was so brief that it's hard to explain it. Um In retrospect, now that it 's still in thousands, if not millions of arms each day, um, if you were to assess that those two decisions the the unmasking decision and the j and j pause decision would you say they were both questionable decisions or different you know in how you assess them?
1: I think they're really different, and um I think that that one big difference was not just that the the J&J pause was really an example of being extremely cautious versus um, not to say that the CDC isn't being cautious and what their mask recommendation is, but they are, you know, proceeding ahead quickly. But I think that for me, one of the biggest differences is that The the J&J pause was accompanied by two meetings of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, which is the advisory board that that makes recommendations for CDC uh, and FDA about how vaccines should be used. And they had two of those meetings in which all of the data that was used to justify the pause and that ultimately was used uh, to to make the recommendation to resume using the J&J vaccine was shared. Those hearings were public people were allowed time for public comment. Um, The public had a seat at the table uh, for that entire conversation. For this mass guidance conversation, it really kind of came out of nowhere. Um, While the the data has been available to the public, um, most people didn't know that this was going to happen until the day that it happened and it was announced. So there was uh, great transparency. I think the public understood the process and the rationale for pausing the J&J and then resuming its use, even if they didn't agree with that. Um, for this mask guidance, there, there really was no opportunity for that that type of uh, public-facing decision-making. And I think that's why a lot of people are concerned about it.
0: final question, you have a unique vantage point as someone who has studied um, and taught you know, engaged in, in the scientific process now in the U.S., but your most recent appointment and you, and you relocated to Canada. Um, so from your perspective, now that you kind of have a lens on how Canada is navigating, um, we know that they don't possess the surplus or at least most recently ha- did not possess the surplus of, of vaccines that the U.S. has. Um, but but how would you kind of look at the two countries from the perspective of navigating this stage of the pandemic?
1: Well, you know, Canada is in a difficult situation compared to the U.S. just because uh, they, they have a much lower supply of vaccines, although in recent weeks that has gotten better. Um, I... I'm feeling very fortunate to be here, actually, because the, the organization that I'm starting my lab in, the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, or VIDO here at the University of Saskatchewan, uh, is really uh, the result of investments from the Canadian government to strengthen their own pandemic preparedness uh, plans and pandemic <clears throat> response capacity. Um, and part of that is developing new vaccine technologies and uh, manufacturing those vaccines. So I feel very hopeful for the future um, in terms of what's going on in Canada. I also feel pretty good about the improvements that have been made here, but without question, one of the issues that Canada has had is uh, a lack of vaccine supply. And that's entirely, um, well, not entirely, but in large part that's due to the U.S. holding on to all their vaccine supplies, so seeing this guidance now coming from the U.S. is very frustrating, uh, because you know I'm I'm seeing Canadians who are just finally getting their first doses of uh, Moderna or Pfizer, um, really being overjoyed to do that, and it it's just very frustrating that there are so many vaccine doses sitting on shelves in the U.S. that could be used not only in Canada but in other countries around the world this is something that we need to be thinking about in terms of the next pandemic. We can't be prioritizing certain countries that can afford it for vaccination over others. Um, We've seen now, and we are seeing uh, in real time, not only the surge that happened here in Canada, that's fortunately appears to be somewhat on the decline, but the the surge in India and Nepal, um, in many parts of South America and Latin America, uh, ha- has really been devastating, and it's entirely because of this lopsided distribution of the vaccines globally. Um, this is something we all need to be thinking about, regardless of what country that we're in, uh, and and planning how we can avoid this
0: happening in the future. Virologist scientist Dr. Angela Rasmussen, thank you so much for joining me again today.
1: It's really my pleasure. Anytime, Alex. Thank you. Thank you.